11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Amazon teams up with American Express for small businesses, Nationwide launched their venture fund, and Goldman Sachs predicts England versus Brazil in the World Cup final. All this sports ball and more in today's news show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork Oldgate. My name's Simon Taylor from 11FS, and I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, first up, we have Freddie Kelly, who's the CEO of Credit Kudos. Uh, Freddie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Uh, Veronique Barbosa, who's the co-founder and COO of Flux. Veronique, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. Uh, returning guest is Tanya Andreessen. Have I said your name right? Yep. Yeah, I got there. Who's editor at Banking Technology. Tanya, how are you doing? You said you had a stressful day. Yes, uh, I have. So now I'm going to vent it all out at this program. I'm liking the sound of that. (laughs) And we're joined by Philip Clark, who's the founder of Hunch. Philip, how are you? Yeah, good to be here. Thanks so much for being here. All right, let's get started with this week's news. And the first one, the headline here is Amazon have teamed up with American Express for small and medium businesses. Uh, So American Express is a deal with Amazon uh, for a card aimed at small businesses. They announced this co-branded card, and the move comes only one day after the U.S. Supreme Court sided with Amex in a lawsuit over merchant fees, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Amex won a mandate over other banks, including J.P. Morgan, and Amazon's made a lot of moves lately in the small business sector. They do lending in the space. Um, There's a whole bunch of prime memberships, and they've lent, apparently, uh, through partnerships, up to $3 billion to their small businesses. I mean, Tanya, did you have any thoughts when you saw the story? Oh, wait, Amazon is becoming a bank. Oh, no. <gasps> Amazon's becoming a bank. No way. Have you heard that before? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought I just came up with that. It's not a cliche, <laughs> is it? No, no, no. Very original. <laughs> but, yeah, no, Amazon, kudos to them. They see the market. They see how they can make money out of it. They see how they can partner, how they can expand in their going for it. I mean, it's not the first time they're doing some work in terms of SMEs. They already have a pretty established partnership with Bank of Baroda in India going on. Uh, So I don't know whether that includes credit cards. I don't think so. But essentially, a credit card is lending, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's a small business sector, Philip, that seems to be the one that keeps coming up as a gap in the market that, you know, the, the platforms themselves are starting to fill, but they're filling them through partnerships. Yeah, I think um, one of the things is that it's an unloved category. People have been left alone for a long time, but SMBs are happy to pay for services. The trouble is a lot of SMBs are run by people who know what good experiences can be as consumers and consistently fail to get them as businesses. So there's an opportunity for somebody who understands delighting customers, understands digital to do something interesting. I think Amazon's interesting as well because they are a long-term player and so they're happy to not make money in the near to midterm in order to build a, a footprint. They have a track record of that, haven't they? Like, they, they run unprofitable for a very long time on a product line. Uh, like, uh, the Amazon Web Services was unprofitable for four or five years before it. Now it's a cash cow. I think that's the key thing. And they, because they're prepared to do that, compare that with how banks operate, where people are incentivized every quarter yeah. or every half. You do different things, you make different decisions, and you treat people differently. So does that, did Veronique, I don't know, or Freddie, do you feel like that could move away from partnership and to become a threat to the banks over time? What are your thoughts? I I personally 
don't think so. I think like the first thing when I think when I see this news is, God, I hope uh, it's linked to automated expensing uh, with (laughs) with Amazon in some shape or form, uh, because I I personally know that every time, uh, you know, having to go through our VAT invoices comes around, although Amazon business is very helpful, it still doesn't solve the problem of having to go in uh, transaction by transaction to pull out the VAT. There's a founder of a small business that's growing, (laughs) if ever I heard one. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think... One thing that also springs to mind is when Amazon Business launched in the UK, you know, the, the headline was that they were partnering with the banks here mm-hmm. um, and they, they have that deal already up and running. So I think it's, it's actually very complimentary. I'd, I'd say perhaps on the other side that they, they could just be testing the waters with this. You know, Amazon's notorious for building a marketplace and then looking at what works and building it themselves and kicking out the, the suppliers. So, I we mean, there is that argument as well. With Alibaba, right, they, they actually used all of this because um, they had the double-sided market. They had the buyer and the seller they were able to see the credit worthiness of both sides of that transaction and then start um, lending from their own balance sheet without financial yeah yeah i mean you know if you're if you've got a business's entire history spending data and, and income data it's very easy to make a an assessment of risk so you know they're, they're in the ideal position there well if amazon does eventually become a bank i will forgive them for saying you know, we are the Amazon of banking. <laughs> Actually, literally the Amazon of banking. Just wanted to say nobody else is allowed to say that. Please don't yeah. stop saying that. As yeah. well as Uber of banking and Netflix of banking or anything else. Of Those banking. metaphors just need to go away. I think if we were doing the emoji wall right now, they would be in the tree somewhere. They would be, uh, for those of you that don't know what the emoji wall is, this is our... Um, this is our ha- how cool is a given subject and being the something of banking is is the least it's probably one of the most annoying things a banking exec can say exactly so please stop (laughs) (laughs) you heard it here guys Uh, all right next story apparently monzo have teamed up with transferwise so they've partnered around international payments which is right after starling bank in the uk of course famous competitor with uh, monzo dropped transfer wise so the international payments one of the most requested features from the monzo community and they're talking up their deep integration so there's a thing here where monzo customers who don't have an existing transfer wise account will have an account automatically created for them when they initiate an international money transfer which i thought was really interesting or if you already have an account you can use your existing account which is quite different to what we'd seen in the past so n26 out of germany have had TransferWise integration for 18 months, two years, but it's almost like you're in this separate world that can never touch the TransferWise world. Like the N26 version of TransferWise is almost completely different to TransferWise. So I guess questions to the room. Monzo chose partnering. Starling chose to build in-house. Are there pros, cons here, Philip, to to each approach? I don't know if it symbolizes a a split. You know, one organization wanting to be a a marketplace and effectively looking to monetize a a range of options for its customers and Starling looking to actually make money through manufacturing product like banks kind of do. But it's interesting, though, that Starling have probably been the most vocal in terms of some of their marketplace partnerships. I mean, they partnered with Pension B and countless others. They, they actually have an up-and-running marketplace. I think there's, there's a handful of things in the marketplace, Flux being one of them, I believe. But that marketplace is growing. And yet on international payments, they, they seem to have gone a different route. Maybe it's, you know, it strikes me, and maybe I'm wrong here, that there's more of a, we know banking, we know how the plumbing works in the stalling mentality. We think we can make this make more economic sense, maybe, or? I, I'm surprised. It strikes me that 
FX is one of the few places you can still make money because there's still no absolute price. And so even if you're a transparent operator, it still doesn't mean you're getting a great price. Mm. But it also strikes me as an environment in which everybody has to partner for reach anyway. Okay, so at some point they are partnering for reach globally Mm -hmm. and they're sharing revenue. So I I don't know. I'm not on the inside of it, but it strikes me that... um, what uh, Monzo are trying to do, which is all about making removing the hurdles to people using the services mm-hmm. um, by integrating the front-end experience makes a lot of sense. I think it's just on a, I guess, case-by-case basis. So Starling partners for some things and for some things say they tried with TransferWise and thought, hmm, hang on a second, for economic sense, that, that would be my guess, mm-hmm. uh, it probably makes more sense for us to go it alone. Uh, but for something else, we will partner. But for any startup, any challenger, as you grow, you do need more technology, more solutions, uh, more scale, more reach. And the only way to do that is either you go and partner or you purchase or you build yourself. So whilst building might be quite an, uh, I guess, attractive option in some ways, but there is a problem is how do you scale then afterwards? You know, how do you maintain what you build yourself? You know, how far reaching can it be? Are you building yourself technical debt or are you building yeah. your, the infrastructure for the future? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in Veronique's perspective on this because obviously you are a, a marketplace partner. You you see it almost from the other side. You know, what do you think? Are we going to see more partnerships? Or are you going to see this bifurcation of like some people wanting to do more themselves? It, it, it's kind of difficult to figure out what the strategy is on these pieces of knowing it, it does seem case by case really, doesn't it? Yeah, I, w- I would agree. It's definitely case by case. I mean, I think from from my perspective, uh, as someone who works uh, with Starling Bank uh, and also uh, and also Monzo Bank uh, in a capacity, is that from Starling's perspective, like they have a very clear B two B strategy as well. And I think building that though that those rails and that pipe for international transfers is really critical to a lot of like probably what they're thinking about. This is my own opinion uh, around around B two B. I think, in terms of working with with TransferWise, uh, it's a great brand partnership. But fundamentally, like I think a lot of us know that uh, you know I don't know how exactly how TransferWise works, but uh, one main partner powering a lot of the international transfers today is, is still Currency Cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so curious to know, you know, why not go direct? Yeah. And fundamentally, I think it's because the two brands align very nicely. There's probably a, a good amount of overlap over over user base, and and that that in itself is is advantageous. There's something interesting about the experience here, isn't there? About like how deep the integration has been. It's it it does feel like it's well rounded as a product offering. Yeah, it seems less like a sort of white label. We're just going to provide the pipes, and more about you know this is upfront. You're using a transferwise product, and you're going to get an account as a result of it, which is seems to be quite different from the other. Which is not dissimilar to how Monzo did the bill switching piece. It was baked right into the core experience. It wasn't like you can here's the you switch app in the marketplace that you can turn on. It's right in the the core of the product. Oh, here's your transaction. Did you know you could switch? And it's just a. It, I think there's almost a different philosophical approach there. I think one of the things is that um, as soon as you start introducing hurdles with new logins or or new IDs, you get a massive drop-off. And if we look at how people switch, whether it's in utilities, whether it's in uh, PCA, there's about four times as many people seriously consider switching as actually get round to it. And it's just an administration challenge. So if you can remove that administration challenge and you'll default in rather than default out, 
you'll pick up more customers. So I did an interview with uh, Tom Blomfeld in sort of December time. Um, you can go back and, and find the episode if you scroll back through the list on iTunes, and it was also on YouTube. And one of the things that interested me is how they thought about you know sort of the analytics of what features are being used and increasing conversion and uh, you know kind of the the techniques they use to do that. There does seem to be a real focus on uh, it's not just bringing the partners in; it's it's kind of making sure the experience is sensible when they do. But um, our own Sarah Kachansky wrote a blog on this, calling it like an arms race to launch products first. I mean, Starling have been releasing products at a rate of knots. We're in a very different phase right now to where we were sort of a year ago of like, will these banks ever become banks? Oh, it's just a prepaid card to like, there's a lot being shipped by both of these organizations. Well, absolutely. I mean, how much of it is going to be picked up and how much is going to stay and how much is going to, uh, you know, really genuinely blossom, that remains to be seen. But you can see that the challenger banks, they went through a phase of, oh, so new, so exciting, we have this cool app, whatever. Now, I think the market and people are just not bothered anymore. So you have to come up with new things and saying, okay, so we were cool. Now we're actually going to deliver this, this and this to make your life easier in this way, that way and that way. So you've got to do it. You know, this cool app can only carry you that. But it seems like Revolut are shipping features really quickly as well. Like everybody, there is a bit of an arms race. What's that? Bafflingly. Yeah, bafflingly fast. Like it's, it's insane the rate of knots at which they can. But is that just having new infrastructure and is it shipping for the sake of shipping or is, is there a coordinated I feel threat? like there's a slightly different approach they're sort of you know testing things out in an MVP way with the way they're putting products into the platform whereas Monzo is going for like a like you say like a deep integration you know you look at some of the lending products and credit products and FX products Bitcoin all that stuff that's going to Revolut and the experience is a little bit more disjointed than it is with something in Monzo there is also another thing as some of the features are really kind of quite small features they're not massive things you know they're just made to look like oh very exciting and and big and this and that and that but in reality if you like dig down to it it's just a basic thing but i often talk about uh one of the things when we're talking to clients at 11FS is like people often poo-poo the Starling bank, uh, Starling banks, the Challenger banks, the Atoms, the Monzas, you name them, Revoluts, they poo-poo all of them and say, well, it's a really basic feature set. And, and historically, we tended to view uh, a bank account as a set of features and capabilities and the more features was better. But actually, we've kind of flipped now into, well, how great is the experience and is it something that I love? When we talk about minimum lovable product, like do you actually, for whatever reason people do love these brands people you talk to a revolut customer they're like yeah no i really like when i travel i can use it and it's, it's not just a cult hey, maybe it is a weird cult <laughs> who knows <laughs> did, hey by the way did anybody see this blog post um that monzo put out very very recently i think it was actually on the 28th uh, of june so mm-hmm. today as we're recording this revealing how they protected their customers from a Ticketmaster breach did you see this Annie? yes yes that was very nifty they actually what months before Ticketmaster even admitted that they had a breach, you know, Monzo was there on the case straight away and really helped to kind of uncover it and help to protect the customers. So, you know, great for them. And just to come back on the sort of features versus lovability. I mean, if a bank, any bank, be challenger bank or incumbent bank, can combine successfully that kind of experience and a set of features that clients want, that's, that's the winning combination to me. The only thing I would add to that is I'm absolutely in love with the joint accounts on Starling. I think as someone who has tried for many, many months to open a, a joint account with my partner, it's, it's a nightmare. That thing that you just said, I love it. 
what other bank can say their customers really feel that way about opening an account? Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe they love the fact that I was able to get a mortgage and go on with my life, and there are some things that the big banks do really well. But have you ever heard them somebody say, signing up for it was lovely, like, and, and now I'm really loving this? That's that's, that's the differentiator. Well, that's, that's the useful feature combined with great experience. Yes. That's, you know, I mean, a joint account is nothing new, right? And actually, in the US, Simple did it uh, like nearly a year ago, I think, and they and up and they did it quite well as well. And I Simple think that did was do well, but they, they seem to get so far and stop. But I wonder if that was because they weren't really in control of their destiny as much behind the scenes, right? They, they were always, to my understanding, they were more of a neobank insofar as they were on somebody else's platform. There was only so much they can do, whereas your Starlings, your Monzos, your Revoluts have built their own platform, yeah. is my understanding. So the, the, they're in more control of the experience. Just coming back to this um, Ticketmaster thing briefly. So apparently on the 6th of April, 50 customers got in touch with Monzo to report that fraudulent transactions happened. And so they did some analysis to try and identify some trends. They noticed a pattern. 70% of the customers affected had used their cards on the same online merchant, and that merchant was Ticketmaster. This seemed unusual. So then within four and a half hours, they'd put updates on their fraud systems to block any future transactions on the cards that look suspicious in a similar way. Over the following weekend, they saw those attempted transactions, um, and then they decided to reach out to Ticketmaster by the 12th of April and say that something had gone wrong. And by the next week, a few more cards had been uh, used, and then they, they kind of were confident that a breach had happened. So then they told MasterCard and decided that Monzo themselves were going to replace every Monzo card that had been used at Ticketmaster period which I think is just massively proactive like have you ever seen a big bank do this before it gets announced like I've seen bank I've seen like there's definitely always been like this is not new financial services organizations there is information sharing there are fraud rules put in there are fraud departments doing all of this stuff right now but there's there's something interesting a about the transparency here and B, about the like the speed at which they moved. I don't know that a big bank could do this. I mean, Philip, am, am I wrong on that? Have I? I think what I like about it is less the kind of the operational hurdle, which I'm sure, you know, is, is impressive. But to my mind, it talks to a big hotspot, which we're seeing across a number of industries, which is about taking this role, helping to control and, and protect somebody's personal data economy. And in an environment of open banking and an environment of GDPR and hashtag delete Facebook, yeah. customers don't know what's out there, where they're exposed, or who's going to look after them. And if Monzo has a footprint of customers who are loyal advocates, but who they need to use the service and build more of a daily habit, strikes me this is a great thing to do. It just reinforces that they are protecting customers and doing things in a way that traditional banks perhaps don't. I love this blog approach. What do you think of that, Freddie? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, the, just like the relationship between customer and bank is just totally different. I, I had a friend of mine uh, was talking about this recently. I was asking him you know, why he loves Monzo. And he was saying he'd been traveling somewhere uh, and made some massive transaction. And their support team had got in touch with them and started chatting about, you know, oh, is this is this you or is this someone else? And then they'd got into a long conversation about like which restaurants that he'd been visiting in the in the area and all this stuff. And just like that that kind of relationship with a bank is just something that people was the food nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I think that's it's much more human. This that much more human thing is the thing that everybody loses when they talk about it's a prepaid card and an app and sure they have some some logos on it. But I think this is to me the thing that's different about the challenger banks. I, I hear all the time. There's nothing new in the challenger banks. I think from a service perspective, first direction 
Direct had been doing this sort of chatty thing for some time, but their systems wouldn't let them... You know, you've got a great human, but the human couldn't do what happened here, which is tell the story. Although I do wonder a little bit about, are you throwing Ticketmaster under the bus? Are you throwing... You know, previously it was GPS, their payments provider. Like, if somebody else messes up, they make sure you know it's not them. You know, <laughs> Well, I mean, fair play, right? <laughs> I think, like, the best part of this approach in this story uh and again uh, referring back to, to to my to my partner he he has been a victim of fraud uh more than once and the most terrible part of it is his bank which is one of one of the large banks makes him come out as the villain in the story now that he's been a victim of fraud more than once they now treat him as if you know you know they've put all these extra blocks on his account for everything he wants to do anytime uh he 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 has a request i mean they they seem to punish him almost so i think that that approach is is what's so vastly different to, to this story it's interesting is like is the customer the hero or the villain or are they just a number there's a different type of approach and and also like i, I truly believe that the big banks have a lot of people inside them that are genuinely trying to do the best for their customers, but might not necessarily be empowered to. Mm. I also, I mean, this is a great story, but Monzo, in terms of numbers, in terms of customers they have and transactions they do and the systems they have in place, is incomparably smaller to, so for example, a big legacy bank. Absolutely. And would they be able to do something like that with the same proactive stance and as quickly and as efficiently? Well, that's if a really interesting size, question. That's a whole different... Because you know. people talk about, well, will it be the same when they've got more customers and a bigger balance sheet? Um, but but I often wonder, like, do we do we know this comes down to the definition of like microservices and true DevOps? Big banks for a long time have been talking about we're doing agile at scale, and it's like, no, you're not. Uh, you you're doing something that you call agile at scale, but what you're actually doing is putting post-its on a wall for the sake of feeling agile. The reality is your employees inside a large bank cannot be empowered to do their jobs to the best of their ability if what you've done is you've put some new technology over the top of some very, very old technology and some, more importantly, some very old processes that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years in some cases, even hundreds of years, some of these processes. I think the most powerful thing about the challenger banks and what's not novel is they've reinvented not just the processes but the architecture so if you have microservices architecture you're deploying eight times a day uh, Jason often talks about um, BizOps, this idea that if you have somebody sitting in a fraud department or you have somebody talking to a customer, they have an engineer baked into their team who can go into the system and test something in the live system. You have eight different instances of your system that's running live, so if two of them go down, you're fine. You never take something down over a weekend. You never take the system down over the weekend. It's just, this is how startups, you know, startups have been doing this for 10, 15 years. It's how Facebook and Google run, but it's doing that in tech i do think there is a thing there that means that they could scale um i mean i don't know freddie do you disagree with that or is that i'd, I'd be interested to see uh, like the ratio of, of support personnel versus customer for big banks versus startup banks and whether that's something that will affect as they, as they scale yeah as the number increase well and also as the demographic changes yeah because actually Monzo have been uh, and Starling and Revolut to a certain degree have been charmed in the demographic of customer that they've had. You've had that sort of tech savvy younger person, but that's changing now. Yeah. 
Alrighty, uh, next story. Uh, Venmo uh, have offered debit cards. So uh, Venmo, Venmo, of course, the famous peer-to-peer app in the USA with 22.9 million users, uh, acquired by PayPal, um, apparently launched a MasterCard debit card on Monday. So anywhere MasterCard is accepted, Venmo users can make payments and purchases via the card tracked in the transaction history. Why? Well, I have a theory about that. Okay. Now that... um, Cards are cool in the States because you can do chip and pin, right? Oh, right. right? Okay. Cards yeah, are cool because yeah. that's the future, chip and sign. by the way. Chip, chip and sign. sign. No, it's they removed and... half the security immediately. It's just chip and sign. Chip and sign. Well, in some places, I mean, I've recently been to the, to the States, you can chip and pin. Yeah, you in can't in do contactless. Greens, you can use contactless. Yeah. Oh, no. See? So now it's suddenly like... Hey, go to a Walgreens and a Dwayne Reed. S- see what I mean? So, Stop. hence... <laughs> I am not kidding you. So, so... <laughs> I love that. Stop it. <laughs> That was amazing. Well, I, I recently uh, was in Texas and there were quite a few supermarkets where I was like trying to wave, you know, my card in front of the reader and they were looking at me. You know, That's like, the interesting thing on? is actually the, the merchant themselves, the person, at the, the, you know, the cashier gets really confused when you try and tap the card and they're like, no, 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 the, the chip goes in here. They just think you messed up. Like, But until what earlier this year or the end of last year, you still, you know, signed and you had that machine thingy that, you know, so... If you're Venmo and if you're cool, would you ever have a card? Probably not. Now it's cool, so you have a card. And let's face it, a card is still very, very useful, right? Absolutely. And it comes in like cool colors and there is no more dough on the picture. But apparently they're doing six different colors, not one signature color. So, um, oh, wow. And it's um, the graphic is vertical rather than it's horizontal. Did you see that, that as well? That was really cool, actually, the horizontal graphic, the horizontal card thing. That, that, but the lump of dough, yeah, that's a really odd one. Like, what's the lump of dough about? Oh, so producer Laura pointed out that dough is money, uh, and I'm an idiot. Oh well, never mind. All right, let's uh, let's uh, kind of talk a little bit more about this one because uh, apparently their transaction value uh, per unit is around ten dollars, and of course, uh, Zelle, which is the kind of the equivalent peer-to-peer payments app that's come out from the big banks, is closer to two hundred ninety dollars. So. Venmo's much more like social spending, bill splitting, and Zelle seems to be this like household bills and rent payments and everything else. Boring stuff. Yeah. yeah. So is, is Zelle not cool? Well, no. By definition, I guess Zelle is owned by the big banks, yeah. right? So therefore, no matter how hard it tries, it can never be cool. Uh, Venmo, on the other hand. Venmo just blows my mind as a business anyway. Like when I moved to the States, just the idea that you I, I didn't understand it at first. Then I tried to do a bank transfer between like a regular bank and realized that that was like physically impossible. And mm. then you understand why this business exists, but it's just, it's boring here, right? We we have like pasta payments and all these things that already exist. So I don't think either of them are cool. It's just a payments <laughs> process. Neither of them are cool. Nothing is cool in <laughs> well, payments, according to Freddie. There you go. Ruining the premise of FinTech Insider. In no. <laughs> but uh, I think there, and I, I don't have an answer here, but I think there must, there's a bigger play going on here that uh, I haven't managed to the dots on yet i mean venmo is is owned by paypal paypal's just gone on a massive spending spree picking up by zettle to others i, I think there's a bigger thing at play here absolutely are, are venmo trying to become a bank i mean paypal do all the, paypal have some banking licenses they they have credit cards they have there are this weird multifaceted thing i mean Phil, do you have views on what paypal's trying to do here uh, i have absolutely no insight at all but uh, it strikes me that if venmo's acquired customers and paypal have paid for them by acquiring the business, then they want to drive more transactions. Most transactions for most customers in the US are still offline. 
And so actually being stuck in a P2P bubble or being stuck in an e-com arena is great, but it's not enough. And putting a, an old-fashioned card on the front of an account gives it reach and it gives it scalability and the same customers can be monetized more broadly. Right. We, we and then you bring iZettle to the US and then you own the end-to-end experience. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, it's interesting as well that we'd seen uh, a lot of the other peer-to-peer apps. So uh, Apple have launched their own card. We've seen Google have now started to do the same. It's like trying to bring that peer-to-peer. Square, I think. It's Square have done yeah. their own card as well, yeah. It's trying to bring that peer-to-peer payment into the physical world a little bit. Take this beachhead of user base I have and kind of grow that into the physical world and, and kind of expand into users' lives a little bit. So you know, maybe maybe it is yeah it's hard to say what the play is running because it like where's it going to go um but you could see a, a whole bunch of stuff it could be Alrighty, next story um, apparently bbva have done some facial recognition payments so they're trialing facial recognition payments so a camera booth next to the till or the checkout recognizes customers and automatically bills them i, f- I don't know why but i Maybe I'm getting old. I find that quite creepy. Trialing this in both... uh, They're apparently trialing this in the Madrid headquarters. So, you know, will this ever see the light of day is is a very good question. Um, The system was developed by a startup called Veridas, and it's a joint venture between BBVA and and an organization called Das Nano. And Guillermo Sanchez, the head of BBVA Payments, says it's fast, it's secure, and it will fundamentally change the way people pay for goods and services. Literally taking things at face value. (laughs) (laughs) Did he say that, or was that your bit? I think that was producer Laura's crack there. I think... literally people taking things so it was him there you go um but just laura quite liked it well there you go would you use this i would use it but i'd have used thumb print payments when uh, pay by touch launched stuff in 2002 or four so you recognize your own bias towards using this sort of stuff i think the the problem with everything is enrollment Right, a, a great Where do you seamless, get my face? Yeah, a great seamless checkout experience is great, whatever it is. And customers don't understand why biometrics are so slow coming into payments because they kind of expect it. You've been able to use uh, Threadmain uh, ATMs in Japan for over 20 years. So it's not a tech problem. This is a tech solution. It's an enrollment problem. That's always the problem with these things. Completely. And uh, the interesting thing is if my card gets stolen, I can cancel it. If my face gets stolen, it's a bit harder to cancel. Yeah, but... If your face got stolen, I'm not going to say anything. Uh-huh. <gasps> face off. I mean, can you can you just hold up a picture of someone else to the to the camera? And- well, so some facial recognition apps they they look for the um, some banks now do this for KYC AML. They want you to record a video of yourself um, talking to them to to bring bring you into the KYC stuff. You know, so you're on Fido's, you're authentics, or all do that kind of stuff. But then to log in, you have to have uh, sort of three seconds of you looking at the camera. We did this uh, sort of 18 months ago. We did some research where we took a video of somebody looking at the camera and put that next to a phone that was doing the the authentication, and boom, you could get straight in. But no authentication is perfect, right? It's 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 hard to say. I think, like me personally, this might sound silly, but my the first thing I'll say is my co-founder would absolutely love this discussion. He he's definitely thinks this is where where the future is. The first thing I'll say is I think h- how do you know it was successful? So like what happens when we're we're at the point where you're at a McDonald's, you're being served by a machine, you're paying at a machine with your face. Unless, oh, or well, I guess there would have to be a success message there. But I, my, my, if, if it's Uber, a human, right? right? Yeah. How, like, would they have to like wink at you to know that like your payment went through? You're all good. And, you know, like you can leave now. They give you the finger guns. <laughs> <laughs> and then what if you walk out and they're like, 
uh, more importantly like know. what problem is it solving yeah. yeah the friction at checkout is one of the big reasons people abandon cart in physical retail stores if there's a long line people leave i was at kfc last night and i saw that people would get frustrated and leave if they couldn't get their chicken on time and i was hungry um <laughs> well the, the, I, thank you for sharing that with the group. Uh, i feel like i'm in therapy right now this feels good i went to a kfc other chicken shops are available yeah. uh, i'm not on the bbc i don't know why i did that uh but, connoisseur. <laughs> but the reason i mentioned that is we saw this story came up about 12 months ago where kfc in china have actually done this so it's live in about 12 stores there is something about cart abandonment when uh, amazon were looking at taking over uh, whole foods one of the things they wanted to look at is getting rid of the checkout and you know can you just pick up your stuff and go and we have that already with uber right you get in the car i don't know when the payment really happens with uber all i know is that i get in the car i get to where i need to and i leave and then it bugs me about making sure i review the person that's the only friction but i don't know now speed at checkout is is quantifiable for these big merchants well i think in this particular case they did explain they said well if you have your hands full of shopping all you do is just you know look at the camera and you walk on kind of thing and that's that's how you do it whether it's really that big of a problem you know yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess it's no different to those e-passport gates know. at the airport, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, look, we have queuing problems, Yeah, but um, we have solutions to queuing problems, which is better design, uh, contactless, and a number of other options. I'm not sure that this is anything other than a bit of cool Spanish tech. Uh, so they did some marketing and put out a press release about it. All right, moving on. Credit Karma, the CEO of Credit Karma says, autonomous money is on its way. So Ken Lin says, autonomous money will be here in five years. Autonomous finance, all of our most um, financial decisions could be automated without asking for permission. For example, computers would refinance our debts when it's most advantageous, investing our cash into longer term investments and rebalancing them when it makes sense. Uh, And life insurance and other protection would be on autopilot. So there's a great stat here as well. Apparently, robo-advisors manage uh, 98.5 billion dollars uh, of assets under management in 2016 and charles schwab predicts this will climb to 460 billion by 2020 so in four years that's a uh, you know four and a half x multiple and american overspending on auto loans in the last year was 37 billion so it's almost like having your personal assistant run your money but software is doing it this this seems great but is five years realistic is this already happening what are your thoughts on this one I've worked this concept up for at least 10 clients because it's inevitable. It's the inevitable combination of personal data and uh, marketplaces or uh, aggregators. It's inevitable that it's coming, but it's always a little bit manana. I think with a lot of this stuff and a lot of stuff driven by more open and democratized data, the technology and the ability to do it is doubtless there today. Mm -hmm. Consumer behavior isn't probably quite there. And if you talk to consumers about this, they understand why it's... I would love this, by the way, because I always forget to do stuff like insure my car, pay for my tax. Somebody else just do it and automate it. Absolutely. Stop me going to prison. I I think it's great. But then I do this for a living. Most consumers, most of the time, have a, a sort of dotted red line about being in control. Yeah. So we talk a lot with customers, particularly in banking, around how aggregation isn't enough in open banking, how nudging isn't enough, and... And sending people texts to tell them they're about to go overdrawn isn't enough. You can do little helpful things like recognize how people have behaved in the past and replicate that and give them an undo function. So I think there are roots into it, but I think there's a it's um it's an adoption challenge but a lot of that's surely about building the right experience because if the technology is there and the infrastructure is there as you say which 
I don't know that it necessarily is. I mean, open banking still feels manana as well. So uh, to get access to all of this data and to really be able to uh, transact it, that seems like more the barrier than having the ability to put together the ability to make the instructions. Like I could recognize that your insurance is due and I could recognize that you need to do it. Can I get access to all of the places to do it? And then more importantly, can I give you a product experience that both makes you feel in control, but that you also love? I think that's the really hard hard question so i don't know if any of you guys have used flipper which does a similar thing just in the energy market and it basically the premise is you pay a small fee to them and they automatically move you onto a better energy tariff when it becomes available so it's like your guardian angel make sure you're never on the wrong tariff it's it's a similar story here that the guy from credit karma is talking about but as well as the behavioral or experiential thing i think it does beg the question what happens to industries that are based on a, an imbalance between back book customers and front book customers? Insurance works because most people don't switch and pay too much. That's why people who switch get good deals. It's the same across financial services. But sources. isn't that a competition issue? Like, if the business model of insurance and banking is fundamentally that most people don't shop around, yeah. then isn't that industry broken? Absolutely. but And I think that's the seismic shift that this then brings along, where your AI services are enabling you to be a smarter customer, that shifts the market. So I think it's not just tech and it's not just experience. It breaks the business models of a lot of incumbents. Well, there was the FCA report from a couple of days ago where they were saying sort of that the business model of the incumbents is as broken as it was in 2008 and it hasn't really changed. And they're looking at options to be able to do that. Maybe if open banking ever did arrive, it might might start to change it. Well, possibly. And it's interesting that Charles Schwab which is as American as it gets, you know, predicts all this autonomous, um, you know, finance by 2020, um, you know, what, 460 billion, and the States is nowhere near, you know, they in integration-wise or technology-wise or customer-wise or, or mentality-wise, you know. It's you really not, is it? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'd argue that open banking definitely is here, but personal interest <laughs> in that. Um, yeah. I think it's obvious to a lot of us, especially in this room, that, computers are just generally better at some tasks than others and i think the question with this will be when it goes across that that red line that phil talks about where you know it's stuff that we think we're actually good at but perhaps aren't that'll be the question it's the, it's the self-driving car question all over again i think isn't it it's like i like to drive my car but am i actually better at it than a robot yeah that's the the human ego am i actually better and, and then who's liable if the machine does go wrong yeah. versus if a human goes wrong it's kind of obvious there's, there's there's all of those sorts of challenges yeah who do you what brands do you trust enough to hand over the keys to your accounts and let them transact for you. Who comes well, to mind? Well, this is why I think transparency in communications is going to become so critical. Like, if a brand can live and breathe this ridiculous level of transparency, then eventually you will gain my trust, especially if you can be human. I think there's something really counterintuitive here about uh, the more digital and automated you are as an organization, the more human and transparent you need to be in how you communicate. Isn't that that's kind of strange? Anyway, does this mean something for digital and financial literacy as well? Like, are we therefore going to lose our ability to understand? Fi- I mean, financial literacy is an issue anyway. Yeah, I, I think there's so many concepts in the world of financial services that are just really hard to explain. And what's optimal or what's best for people is really hard to, to kind of articulate. So when you're putting your the keys to your financial future in, in the hands of a robot, understanding what's going on is going to be a real real barrier like think about it as um 
nowadays everybody uses a GPS or, you know, your Google Maps or whatever. And how many people actually know how to read a map? If somebody gave them a map, you know, a book, how, how many people would like have absolutely no clue? Oldner's surveys map uh, maps rock my world, but let's uh, move on. From- <laughs> <laughs> but that aside, uh, it's time for a quick break, and we'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable, harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives, adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Uh, welcome back. Thank you very much to our sponsors. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. Now, on with the show. Okay, um, going back uh, into the show and, and going down under, uh, Anthony Thompson, who was the founder and I believe uh, one of the CEOs at the time of Atom Bank, one of the challenges in the UK, has launched a new digital bank in Australia. Um, he was also a co-founder of Metro Bank as well, and he'll become a chairman of this new bank in Australia. So the banking startup is called 86,400, named after the number of seconds in a day, uh, will launch in 2019 and is wholly funded by the Sydney-based payments company Kuskal have I said that right Kuskal yeah Kuskal I've never come across that company before they want to raise over 250 million dollars in its first three years and Thompson says 86,400 his best prepared most capable well-funded venture to date is in the unique position of not going out to look in money um, so he says, look, Australia treats customers very badly and needs an alternative. You're looking at sort of there's big four banks there. They're, they're often considered you know, concentrated banking market, and uh, it's not really protecting consumers. Sounds familiar. Um, very different to uh, to uh, the UK, all very, very similar. Yeah, it's probably very similar. Any thoughts on this one? They plan to launch their, launch their beta towards the end of 2018. Not a fan of the name. After <laughs> I think uh, it's pronounced like 86 for 100. I think 86 it's 86 for 100. The, pre- so the, the, announce, the announcement that went out actually specified that in the first paragraph it said pronounced as 86 for 100. Yeah, but like you'd surely just go for like, do you remember the TV show, The 4400? Like that was easy to say. 86 400 is just that little bit too long. Like I know it sounds stupid, but when you're naming an organization, mouthfeel is really important. Like that little bit of awkwardness really. Uh. I, I launched a coffee business called 8.9. So I'm the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's it's definitely an interesting um, you know proposition, and uh, they're not the first ones in Australia, right? Because there's already uh, Xinja Ninja. Yeah, Xinja. Um, yeah. Uh, there is, um, I think, there are a couple of other ones. So uh, the market is ripe for disruption, right? They have this big four, and that's it. So fair play to them and Anthony Thompson of course built up his experience with Metro Bank and Atom Bank they were quite different banks so yeah it's done different things definitely yeah so there's an interesting stat here as well apparently 2.9% of Australian general uh, gross domestic product goes to bank profits so $3 out of every 100 uh, Australian dollars um, goes to bank profits yeah there's a massive investigation in Australia at the moment 
about all the antitrust stuff. There have been quite a lot of fines levied as a result. There's a general consensus that it's a broken model and the, the politicians are incredibly outspoken, which given it's quite an important sector, it's you know painful. The thing I like about this is running it on Cuscal, because Cuscal is, um, if I understand right, a business which runs shared services for lots of smaller participants in banking. Mm-hmm. So they run card schemes, they kind of support credit unions with infrastructure. So they're kind of a bank in a box type with, mm-hmm. with plugs into everything. It's a big play for them. That's the it's way huge because it historically I think Anthony Thompson has always gone with one of the traditional incumbent vendors he's gone with I, I think it was either Fiserv or FIS I can't remember who it was one of those more monolithic ones this seems to be a bit more tailored to the needs of, them, of what he's trying to build here well it's probably he's probably going to go for T24 right now that they offer a cloud in uh, in Australia they bought a local uh, provider Vault which is another Australian startup already selected their system so chances are you know there you go that's my prediction Ooh, i'm yeah. liking predictions <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to predictions for our unfinally story but uh, i'm liking predictions yeah. but you know why uh, australian banks are making so much money is my favorite story recently was about commonwealth bank that were charging dead people for their banking that's wow. like a big story <laughs> cba charged they, the they dead say there's two things you can't ex- escape it's death and taxes it's, but then death in- taxes and charges from combat yeah so death is not an excuse you know, to stop paying the fees for your banking services. Oh, there you go. Death is no excuse. Keep going, people. All right, next story. Um, Nationwide in the UK have launched their venture fund. They've launched a £50 million fintech fund uh, investing in startups. They're going to take on the high street rivals who have a lot of similar things. And they're stressing that it's not simply looking to pump money into startups, but it's going to offer product development support as well. Uh, the first investment, a CASA, I believe it's pronounced, supports both landlords and tenants living in shared accommodation with their everyday finances we spoke to emma huntington from nationwide at their venture fund launch yesterday and nick katz from acasa their first investment let's hear from them now so my name is emma huntington i lead innovation and venturing at nationwide and we're here at the sort of like launch of your fund could you tell us a little bit more about the fund and what kind of companies you're looking to work with Absolutely. So today we've announced the launch of our um, venture fund, which is to invest, but more importantly, partner with fintech companies, so startup companies across our sector. And a really good example of that is the first investment that we've made, which is in a company called Acasa, which is a rental management platform. And the summary for them is really um, no more angry notes on the fridge. So what they promote is harmony uh, and convenience when you're in a shared home. So they have a a platform that allows people to manage their finances, split their bills, and really, yeah, have a much simpler life when they're sharing accommodation, which uh, a huge proportion of our population are renters or in shared accommodation. So it's really, really relevant to our members. And it seemed, so we, um, you guys are up on a panel, got to learn a bit more about everything. Sounds like instead of being sort of like user first, so like a lot like the challenges and everything like that, you guys seem to be person first. So <laughs> it, um, could you speak a little bit about um, sort of like Nationwide's approach to working with, so obviously you're coming in with Seed and Series A. Why have you chosen to come in at that category rather than later stage? So there's really good reasons why we've come in at that stage. So the first one is that we want to get to good ideas quickly and without overwhelming them, shape them so that they may be right for our members, for us to deploy for our members. So it's all about, Nationwide is all about the members. So if we can see things that are happening in our industry, which we think might help our members' lives, um, that's what we want to be able to invest in, whether that's 
in the near term or even in the longer term. It's really important for us because we are, this is about learning for us. So we want to have access to the founders of these businesses. And that typically you can do that when you're at seed or early mm-hmm. stage, which you may not be able to do later. So having access to the brains behind the ideas and learning with them and, and going on the journey with them is really important to us. So for those two reasons, that's why we're going at this stage. Cool. And what do you offer that's a bit different? So obviously there's you guys having access to founders. Uh, what's the difference between a company working with you versus like a traditional VC? Sure. I think there's a few things. Um, One, we are very much a purpose and values driven organization. And so when we're selecting um, the people that we want to invest and partner with, we uh, absolutely have a really rigorous and disciplined process. And for example, before we invested in the CASA, I think it was around 200 companies that we looked at in that in that kind of space so that's really important to us and so the other the other part of it is we will give these um, businesses access to our senior leaders so the best sort of talent within our organization actually not just senior leaders but across our organization access to the best talent which I think will be quite rare so the we can support the businesses and give them the best opportunity to really understand how to work with a large larger organization and that will help them in so many different ways and even support them in certain you know functions and in return what we're doing is learning what about what they're good at which is the entrepreneurial sort of side the agility the nimbleness and 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 really creating that that specialism in their area Cool. And um, how can people get involved? Like, where should they go look? And who are the kind of people that you're looking for? Well, we're constantly scanning the market and we have themes that we look at. They're very much centered around our members. So things like home, things like personal data and identity, um, communities and society. We're looking around those themes. But equally, we absolutely welcome people approaching us. We want purpose and values driven organisations who, you know, when you, if you look at Nationwide, you can very quickly identify whether you, you know, see eye to eye with us. And I suppose the simplest thing for us to say is we really need to know that people are on the side of the customer. And if they've got a very embryonic idea or, or a more fully formed one, we would be interested to hear from them as long as we know that it's all about in our case, members, for them, the consumer or customer. That's what we're interested in. Perfect. And where can they, or like, where can they find out about the fund? So people should go to nationwide.co.uk forward slash venturing. Nick Katz, co-founder and CEO of Acasa. Okay, could you tell me a little bit more about what Acasa does? Sure. Acasa is a home management platform. We allow you to set up and sort out all your different bills for your home in one location. Uh, We've got an app that's live on iOS and Android as well as a web platform. So in three minutes or less, you can sign up to electricity, gas, internet, water, TV license and council tax in the UK uh, and start paying those bills automatically uh, with however many people you live with, with the right amount getting taken from each person. Amazing. And obviously we're here at Nationwide's launch of their fund and you guys are the sort of like first um, sort of foray into that. Number one, how did you find Nationwide as a partner and what have they been like sort of in the initial stages of getting the ball rolling? Nationwide's been, frankly, amazing to deal with. Uh, they've been candid and open and super communicative right from the outset. Uh, you know, they, they, by their own admission, explained from the beginning that this was new for them and that this would be a learning process for all of us. Um, and just ask that we you know, be patient, that we over communicate rather than under communicate, which uh, being me, I was very happy to adhere to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
you know, they've just been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the process overall took a totally reasonable amount of time and they were just really, really great to work with. They've drawn in the right groups of people at the right times uh, and yeah, ha have just been kind of very helpful uh, throughout this entire experience. Brilliant. And what made you go for nationwide versus like a traditional VC firm? So I guess being American, I probably didn't have quite the exposure to uh, what a building society means or, or know like all the detail of the history when we initially started chatting with Nationwide, but obviously I've boned up and learned a ton about it uh, since. Uh, I am familiar with, you know, cooperative structures and that kind of stuff. But I guess really, you know, that was the piece that, that was so refreshing and so surprising. A lot of companies, um, you know, whether they're corporates or startups, talk about being mission-driven, and often you don't have to peel back very many layers to figure out that that is just the line that they put on top of their corporate website. Whereas, literally, I've now dealt with dozens and dozens of people from Nationwide, and in every single case, you know, each individual kind of represents the essence and the mission uh, of Nationwide. Um, you, know, ex you know, definitely, exemplified in the process of actually helping us through our investment journey. That's what they always were born to do with people in their property journey. So working with Nationwide uh, as an investor, I think, you know, they just bring a ton to the table around uh, their purpose driven nature. Uh, but certainly, you know, the scale of their organization, I'm not going to shy away from how exciting that is for us because, you know, they can help us probably get into more homes than possibly any other organization could in the United Kingdom. Could you let me know where people can find more about Acasa and also you yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is www.helloacasa.com. So H-E-L-L-O-A-C-A-S-A.com. Uh, we've got an Instagram following that's gotten pretty big now, a Facebook account, LinkedIn. So just search for Hello Acasa and you should be able to find all of that. Uh, our apps are in the app stores um, and yeah, you can use the website. Uh, for me, probably the best place to get me is on Twitter uh, and my Twitter account is at Nicholas Katz, uh, which is at N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-K-A-T-Z. My name's Harry, I'm CEO of Hazy. Okay, and could you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, so we, we basically, we anonymize data, uh, and that's to help companies share data and use data more securely and, and treat data more ethically, basically. So we take data sets and we use a bit of machine learning to figure out where the personal information is, uh, and then we manipulate the data in some form or some way to anonymize it, uh, which means we, we keep its utility, keep it useful for its specific use case, but ultimately protects the privacy of the people in that, in that data. Sure thing, so you're very user-centric around sort of anonymization and sort of riding on this wave of everyone being up in arms about Cambridge Analytica and everything like that, kind of yeah. defending them against that? Uh, absolutely, yeah, so this is, you know, it's a, it's a massive, um, there's a massive cultural shift to uh, better treatment of data and it, we always talk about it actually as uh, data is the new fur. Yep. So in the same yep. sense that fur has become sort of uh, unethical to use, we think there's certain uh, parallels like with that and data. So uh, our particular um, take on it is that actually uh, there should be companies taking responsibility uh, for, 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 for their use of data, not, the, not necessarily be the responsibility of the individuals. So by providing the right toolkit and the right um, 
software effectively that businesses can use to, to help them achieve this, we think that's uh, a good approach to A, help businesses, but then as a knock-on effect, protect the privacy of individuals. Amazing. Sounds great. So, obviously, we're here at Nationwide's, like launch of their fund well yeah so we are yeah we're still a uh, prospective investee but um actually i think there's some really good parallels with our outlook on protecting users you know nationwide's uh, fundamental core values around uh, member uh, members being member centric etc is 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 a really good match to our core values i think but um but also from a more practical perspective having a strategic investor at this point would be a really big boost for us being able to use them as a test bed uh, and really get to the bottom of, of how we uh, interact and, and work with bigger organizations could be really 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 useful where's the best place for like our listeners to find you hazy.com hazy.com is uh, where where we're at um, we're on twitter hazy underscore ai um, or info at hazy.com do you have like any news or anything you're sort of sharing at the moment? Um, so, well, the the freshest news uh, is that we won the Microsoft Innovate AI competition for, for Europe, which is really, really exciting. It was six weeks ago, but I'm still treating it as new news and telling as many people as possible. But um, yeah, that's our, that's our most exciting news. And that did come with uh, uh, an initial uh, round of investment of a million dollars, which is fantastic, a big partnership with Microsoft as well, and which has triggered this sort of next stage of um, raising a bit more capital. Alrighty, uh, thanks very much for that soundbite. And uh, next story, um, apparently banks are going to offer services via voice assistants and smart speakers. This story comes from Leader Telegram. Um, and uh, I like this one. Uh, Alexa, I can trust you with my checkbook, right? Um, and, so modern. Yeah. Uh, it's just like there's a nice irony there. Uh, can, can, do, does Alexa need arms and a pen? So regional banking giant US Bank is the first to be on all three services. So they're on uh, Alexa, Siri, and uh, Google's, Google's Assistant. So the features are restrictive for now. You can only check your bank balances, pay your credit cards and mortgages, and, and asking for due dates. Apps will announce your available balance over the speaker, which you like how, like if I'm home alone then fine but also like I'm sure like what uh, like reading out a recipe I get anyway we'll, we'll five, get into the run five dollars and 45 cents yeah. yeah like there's something about when a number is read out by a machine that just sounds really odd you kind of want them to shorten it Capital One and American Express have had Alexa skills um, for, for some time but none of those banks allow users to transfer money through their apps I mean there's a couple of things going on here voice and commerce there's a lot to be done but is this this almost feels like the early days of mobile banking apps where it's like here's your balance and by the way you can pay your credit card bill and you're like great like (laughs) any thoughts some of the i think cap one's been doing this for a while and some of the outcomes i saw from the early trials in the us were much like you'd expect in the uk which is that people don't have to be taught how to speak so as a human computer interface it's great people hate the bank telling everybody in the room how much money they've got or the things they've spent it on and um, I don't think that's I think that's probably universal regardless of what country you're in Uh, the really interesting thing for me is when as you say this is first gen when we get to a sense where you can add a little bit more tone and it can be a little bit more human if you look at this kind of stuff and compare it with um, the kind of things that soul machines are doing out of New Zealand where it's genuinely spookily good and real and human to our 
previous conversation about Monzo and some of these challenger banks being more human banks, I think that's how you scale their service model. It's through voice-led interfaces, having the intonation and the tone and the the style of narrative which feels human and compassionate and caring, and that's how they do it. This is clunky um, and slightly odd. It is odd that the banks require the use of a four-digit pin before they'll give you your balance. It's like, what... Like, why do I need to put in a pin to get my balance? Like, so interestingly, a lot of the challenger banks will let you see your balance immediately on the assumption that if you're in your phone, well, I mean, only if you've got some security on your phone, right? So if you're using biometrics. So you have to say your pin out loud. Yeah. Which is really safe. Yeah, great. Like, let's do that. It's it's really odd, isn't it? Um, It just feels kind of clunky. Like, I get that voice is coming and that to be able to have a conversation, but it feels more like, um, you know, we were talking on the previous story or one of the early stories about uh, are we going to be able to uh, kind of be in a position where autonomous money comes along? And it actually, once I'm having a conversation about, like, uh, these are the top three uh, quotes we got. We found this one from here and this one from here and this one from here. Which one would you like? You know, the pros and cons of this like that's the type of thing make a de- if i'm making a decision and you're presenting me the options it's almost like that scene in a movie where the you know there's there's uh, five envelopes and i've got to pick one like if if autonomous voice sort of gets there then that's better place to be than here is your balance like i'd look at my phone if i want to see that there's there's something about a privacy and a context that's sort of missing from these experiences well, some of them, my guess is, again, it's a little bit like a marketing exercise, you know. Oh, look, we can do this cool thing where you can ask, you know, Alexa for your balance and then say, for example, I don't know, Capital One did that first and then American Express said, oh, hang on a second, we're going to do that as well. And then US Bank, oh, wait, you know, so you can expect similar announcements probably from other big banks as well. Once one does something, the other ones feel like they should replicate because otherwise, you know, they'll be left behind. Isn't it weird how, like, it's always going back to what was on the paper statement like like let's tell you what was on the paper statement on the telephone we'll have a human read it out to you in the 1980s in the 1990s we'll put it on a website in 2010 we'll put it on a mobile phone and now we can have an alexa read out to you what's on your banking statement but what's special about that like surely it's changing the nature of the relationship that's key you want that inference you want to be able to say like can i afford a new home in six months time or whatever that there kind of you stuff. go like you don't want to just like read me my balance. That's not conversational help. commerce is much more about actually having a conversation and um, being able to ask questions in the way that yeah you, you kind of want to. I don't know. Would you want Alexa to crush your dreams and say no? <laughs> you know that would be kind of fun. <laughs> like if, if Alexa, I, I don't know if anybody finds this, but the, sometimes like it, it does feel like Alexa falls out with you um, and just re- and refuses to play along for a day, and it's just like nope, not listening to you today. You just kind of get that. <laughs> Alexa's having a bad day. Already um, back in episode um, two hundred and thirteen of FinTech Insider, I actually spoke to Patrick Givens, who's from Vin smart uh, about the future of voice in multiple services so check that out we covered a lot of this this ground in terms of uh, you know where does voice need to go to be really usable uh, next story um, m1 uh, m1finance.com have announced their newest feature m1 borrow uh, they're a digital app-based investment platform in the u.s and with m1 borrow users will have a flexible portfolio line of credit offered at one of the lowest interest rates in the market they can borrow up to 35 percent of their account balance at 3.75%. The interview, for this interview, we uh, had our very own US correspondent, Doug Bobbenhouse. Shout out, Doug. Uh, He went to the uh, M1 headquarters to talk to their CEO to find out more. Over to Doug. 
This is Doug Bobbenhaus with Fintech Insider. Today I'm in Chicago with Brian Barnes, the CEO and founder of M1 Finance. How you doing, Brian? Doing well. How about you? All right. Um, for our listeners who don't know M1, can you quickly tell us a little bit about the company and what you guys do? Yeah, for sure. So M1 Finance is an online brokerage that offers free automated investing. Users can come to the platform, they can create a custom portfolio of the stocks and ETFs they want, and then automate that portfolio. We basically make it extremely easy and cost-effective to invest in exactly what you want, and we do it for free. That's pretty exciting. Um, what's your secret sauce? I mean, what, what kind of makes makes you guys different from everybody else? So I'd say the secret sauce for the company is just being a digital first technology company. So, you know, we rebuilt a brokerage from the ground up from scratch to be able to offer things that the traditional online brokerages can't. So we offer fractional shares, automated investing. We do it for free, whereas, you know, other brokerages you know, you're, you're dealing in whole share increments, you're placing trades, you're getting hit with a commission. Uh, so M1 is able to offer a pretty robust portfolio management tool for a fraction of the cost or you know, infinitely less cost than the other online brokerages. That's great. And is there a, is there a minimum investment? The minimum investment is $100 for taxable accounts and then $500 for IRAs. Okay. And uh, you guys went free um, and, and a lot of other people kind of followed in your footsteps almost immediately right after you did it. I mean, what uh, what led you to go free and, and how, how were you able to do that? Yeah. Um, so we sort of saw that free was an inevitability in the five to 10 year range. We think that the majority of the incumbents, the large financial institutions will all be offering investment management for free. And you know, we wanted to be on the forefront of that sort of leading the charge, making it happen sooner rather than later. Uh, the brokerage industry can, you know, the typical broker only makes about 10 to 30% of their revenues from explicit fees that they charge, The whether that's a commission or an asset-based fee, and they're able to monetize via back-end revenue streams. Uh, we decided to build our entire business on these back-end revenue streams, and in that way, we act very similar to, you know, a checking account, a credit card, um, sort of other financial products that are able to offer the service for free and monetize uh, via other means. That's great. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're here in Chicago. I didn't, um, I didn't think to ask you this, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll back into that. Uh, we're here in Chicago. Um, what makes Chicago a great place for, uh, for M1? Yeah, so Chicago has a incredibly rich brokerage and investing history. So we are the primary place that options and futures are traded at the uh, Mercantile Exchange and Board of Trade. And then we have a rich history of, you know, online brokerages being started here, whether that's Options House, Options Express, Trade King, Trade Monster. So, you know, there's a lot of technology infrastructure to support a brokerage industry. And then, you know, it's also the third most populous city. It's uh, the heartland of America. So, you know, it's a great place that if you're not getting customers in Chicago, you can't get customers anywhere. Are you finding uh, Chicago to be a supportive place to, to have a startup? Absolutely. I think the entire world knows that everything is moving digital, everything is going to be tech enabled, and there's going to be a lot of automation happening. Um, and every city wants to be on the forefront of that. And Chicago has, you know, truthfully, some catch up to do there. And so they're being very supportive to, you know, not only catch up, but leapfrog the the other communities that have a little bit of a head start. Right. How's the talent market? Uh, pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have major universities here. Uh, it's a metropolis that attracts a ton of very smart, bright, ambitious people. Um, and, you know, truthfully, I think the the only downside is I wish people were a little bit more risk tolerant and willing to, uh, you know, create the things that 
people feel comfortable creating elsewhere. Um, there's a little bit of a Midwestern humility that I yeah. wish there was a <laughs> little I mean, bit mo- more. Money more. here seems to want to see that money already is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's a very metrics-driven town. Um, so you guys just announced uh, a brand new product uh, recently, and can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the product is called M1 Borrow. Uh, it is a portfolio line of credit at one of the lowest interest rates on the market. And so it is the simplest and lowest cost way to borrow money out there, period. Um, basically, users can come to the platform, they can borrow up to 35% of their portfolio's value at 3.75% interest. Uh, and so people have instant access to these funds. It's sort of a one-click button to borrow funds. Flexible use, it's general purpose. You can use it for whatever you want and extremely low rates. So cheaper than a HELOC, cheaper than a mortgage, cheaper than an auto loan, definitely cheaper than you know personal loans or credit cards. So you know the simplest and lowest cost way to borrow money. That's pretty exciting. So, um, so basically, you you invest um, and then you you grow your portfolio, and then if you need if you need to be liquid, uh, you can you can pull some money out of that without uh, without uh, selling any assets, and uh, and then pay it back over time at a, at a pretty aggressive rate. Yeah, exactly. So with sort of M one the investing portion and borrow a couple together. Yeah, you can invest in exactly what you want, in exact proportion to what you want for free. So it's a sort of best-in-class investing platform. And simply by using that, you open up this line of credit that you can tap into whenever. So you can always, you know, you can invest your emergency savings. You can put more money into investments, sort of knowing that you have this line of credit available for whatever needs that you want. And it's on the most flexible term. So you can borrow it and pay it back on your own schedule. Right. All right, Brian. Well, uh, thanks very much for talking with us today and good luck to you. Thank you very much. All right. Already thanks, Doug, and great to hear from M1 there. Uh, And finally, story this week is a fun one. Uh, Goldman Sachs have used machine learning to predict an England versus Brazil World Cup final. So we're sitting here on the 28th of June. England have not played Belgium yet, but it does look like they're through to the round of 16. And they're getting ready for that showdown versus uh, England and Brazil. They used their machine learning and the tournament started a bank forecast as Brazil-Germany final, but it's updated its model to reflect recent results, <laughs> which I think is pretty fun. The bad news for England fans, of course, is that Brazil, uh, sorry, that Goldman expects Brazil to win. There's something fun here, isn't there? Well, I'm extremely biased, so I'm actually Brazilian. Uh, I'm half Brazilian, born in Brazil, so uh, that would be amazing. But I think uh, a lot, of, a lot of us Brazilians are still, you know, licking our wounds from from the last World Cup. So. Uh, not, Hopeful, but but not not betting on it. I think. <laughs> well, if Goldman Sachs uses the same sort of calculations to predict where to invest customers' money and things like that, then we're all in trouble. But they're not the only ones. Danske Bank actually issued a prediction as well before the championship began, and they also predicted for Germany and Brazil to be in the final as well, and for Brazil to win. So. Stranger things have happened. And strange things are happening in sports ball land. There's, there's definitely some some weird sports ball activity. We did not expect Germany to go out. And what I love about this is the confidence with which it's going to be Germany versus Brazil. I mean, that was a pretty safe bet at the outset. Yeah. Look how great our machine learning is. We predicted the obvious and then the obvious doesn't happen. And suddenly machine learning doesn't seem so great anymore. Uh, there's definitely like this hype around machine learning that, that we've never seen. And, and again, it comes back to your point, Tanya, that you made about there's a lot of 
of uh, innovation theatre and marketing going on here. But uh, keeping it uh, sports ball, 11FC, um, the 11FS football team, 11FC, are in training for their biggest fixture to date as they prepare to face Monzo in the first competitive 11-a-side match. Uh, follow at 11 sports ball to stay up to date with developments. Uh, assistant producer Petra is so happy right now alright uh, on that note that wraps up this week's news show thank you very much to all of our guests uh, where can people find out more about you Freddie uh, I'm Fred Kelly on Twitter and creditkudos.com is our company address uh, look, look out for Credit Kudos everybody um, very very interesting organisation uh, Veronica you can find us at triflux.com or vbarbosa on Twitter Brilliant. Tanya? Well, bankintech.com is our website and our Twitter feed is Fintech Futures, where you can find loads and loads of amazing GIFs. You got all the GIFs, you got all the GIFs. Um, I, have, right. I have a request, though. If anyone from Viacom is listening to this, please get in touch. Uh, we would very much like to buy Flux.com. <laughs> <laughs> Viacom, you heard it here first. Not only is there a sports ball match happening, Viacom, that you should be covering, <laughs> Flux.com is something that we, we would really like. Uh, 11, uh, Fintech Insider listeners, if you can make this happen, shout out to the Fintech Insider listeners. If you know somebody at Viacom, make this happen and get in touch with Veronique from flux let's do this and philip how about yourself so um find me on linkedin uh, or hello at brilliantunch.com while we're pitching for domains yahoo owns hunch.com we're brillianthunch.com, but, you know, I'll make you an offer. <laughs> Welcome. This week's FinTech Insider is brought to you by domainhunting.com. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. As for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. And as always, if you like what you heard this week, please come talk to us at FinTech Insiders on Twitter, podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us a mail, or hello at 11fs.com if you want to learn more about the team uh, who are building banks and proposition for organizations large and small don't forget please do subscribe so you never miss an episode of sports ball updates and leave us a review on itunes thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now